So the title this morning is Process to Promise. And oftentimes we confuse ourselves whenever we are going through our process thinking that we should be living like our promise. I'll give you an example. If the minister is up here teaching that the promises of God are yes and amen, that yet by Jesus' stripes you weren't, all, you weren't healed previously, but you are healed currently, and he is teaching the promise of God, and you're still going through your process, you may feel like that the word of God or your life are living in contradiction to each other. But when you teach promise and you don't teach process, people get confused when they get home. Because if you're preaching promise, you can jump and shout all Sunday morning. But when you go home and you get to process, you don't know how to live. Because process means that you're being broken down most usually. Now the subject matter for process, the best one I can find in the Word of God are grapes. Grapes are the only fruit grown to be crushed. Their whole purpose of being grown is to being smashed into oblivion. And we are told in the Word of God that we are this vine that has been grafted in and that we're supposed to bear fruit that's going to be crushed. That's why we're grafted in. We're, we're grafted in to be grown, to be crushed. Now, why are we being crushed? Why are we having this, this life where the Lord is telling us that we're being brought up so that we can be tore down? But grapes are not at their strongest whenever they are just grapes. They have to be processed and be turned into wine, and whenever a grape is turned into wine, it is at its boldest. It has the most prominent effects when it has been turned into wine. It can get into your bloodstream and have effects on your body when it is turned into wine. But in order for it to have its strongest effect, it must be boiled, it must be crushed, it must be strained, it must be bottled, then it will ferment, and then it will be drank. But the first step to a grape becoming something that it was to something that it is is a crushing stage. Oftentimes life feels like a crushing stage. And that would be your process as you're moving to your promise. See, we know that grapes and wine in the New and Old Testament both are symbolism to blood. And the only way that you get blood out of the body is that you have to penetrate it to get it to come out. That means that the body has been violated in some way or another for the blood to leave it. The body had to be crushed, capillaries had to be smashed, wounds had to be made, flesh was whipped, ripped open in order for blood to go from being in the body to out of the body. Now, biblically, we like to preach about the promise, but most of the time we skip through the process part, but that's the real part. 
The very first people who started the process aspect of God are Adam and Eve. They lived in promise whenever they were in the garden. But the moment that they fell out of the garden and were cast from it, they began their first known separation from God. And the process of getting back to God began. But can you imagine going and feeling the Holy Ghost and feeling the presence of God and then suddenly not feeling it anymore? What you had come accustomed to, the Spirit of the Lord covering your entire body. Adam and Eve, when they walked with the Lord in the cool of the day, the Shekinah glory was there with them. And that's why they lived so long, because the abundant life of God had filled their bodies so much that Adam lived to be 950 years old because he bathed in the glory of God in the beginning of his days. The presence of God was all about him. The life of God was running through him. And if he'd have never touched the tree, there's a chance he could have lived forever. But then the separation happened and the crushing began. And the first shedding of blood, the first sacrifice to cover man's sin was made so that their clothes could be created from the skins. The second person we find in the Bible is Noah. We think him as a man of victory, but he had a whole earth destroyed underneath his feet, rescued in a great ark, but all of his friends, all of his loved ones, and all the people that he knew, his neighbors, were washed away by a terrible disaster, a world-changing event. We think about the victory of Noah, but we don't realize the reality of Noah, of everything that he loved and knew, even the landscape that he walked on, was changed by this flood. He got out of the boat and didn't even know where he was at because God had rearranged everything underneath the water. Hallelujah. We're getting there. We're going through process. Don't worry. This message gets better. Stay with me. Job had a beautiful family, was a wealthy man, and was well-respected. And everything down to the relationship that he had with his wife was destroyed. She looked at him and said, why don't you just curse God and die? Give it up already. I don't know what you did. I don't know what you were doing, and I don't know what you're thinking, but you have made him mad. Curse him and die. Process moving into promise. But what we forget is, is that when Adam and Eve were pulled out of the garden and the separation had started, Eve was given a promise. Eve was given this promise that there was going to be a child born. And the serpent that had tempted them, his head would be bruised and stomped back into the earth. He may leave a mark on your heel, but you're going to stomp his head. Victory began with promise. Victory began with promise. The promise may not have been fulfilled right then and there, but victory began with promise. Noah, 
even though the entire world was destroyed before it was destroyed, was entrusted with the knowledge of how the world began. His grandfather, Methuselah, was so old that he lived in the time of Adam, the first man created. And Adam deposited into Methuselah the secrets of the creation of the world. And Lamech, who is Methuselah's son, passed it on to Noah. And so even though the entire world was reshaped and remade and destroyed, Noah was given the promise of the understanding and the knowledge of where it came from. He understood what the foundations of the earth were because his grandfather had taught him where they came from. And this promise of knowing that there was one God and one creator was the thing that saved him from being drowned with the rest of civilization. So even though there was a terrible process, there was a much greater promise. And there is not one person that you will read about in this book who did something great, who didn't have great crushing. There is not one person listed in the faith chapter in Hebrews 11 who accomplished something great in faith without going through some kind of great crushing. For every place that they were taken up, they were torn down just as far. For every place that they had accelerated, God had taken them down to the lowest. Joseph was the second most powerful man in the world of his time, but he started out being sold into slavery and lied upon and thrown in a pit before he ever got to the second seat. He was thrown into a prison, and it's not the kind of prison we got now. It's a cave. It's leaky. It's nasty. It's rat-infested. People are in there, and they've been dead a while, and they forgot about them and shoved them to the side. He went from something so dark where light was an unfamiliar thing to going to something so great where he was second in command. For every great promise, there was a great process. For every great promise, there was a great crushing. For every bottle made, there's a crushing. There's a fermenting, there's a remaking, there's a reinvention. Amen. But when crushing crumbs, when crushing comes, I'll get it out, crumbs would have worked too. We oftentimes want to live or stay in our, pro in our process. We get comfortable in the process. We think that the process is where we are supposed to stay. We think that the process is our promise because we can't see past what we're going through. There is a big difference between having faith that endures and faith that has vision. Faith that endures says, I don't know what's coming next, but I hope it's better than what I've got. But faith that has vision says, I know in whom I have believed, and I remember the promises that were told to me, whether they be 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, the promises that were given to me, I know in whom I have believed. 
Faith that endures says I'm walking through the dark or I'm staying in one place in the dark, but I know that I'm covered. Faith that endures says that I know where I'm going. I know where I'm headed. I've been called a pilgrim and a stranger to a land that I know not of, but I'm led by the voice of God, led by the promises of God, and where I head next is by the anointing of God. Hallelujah. That's why the word teaches us that without a vision, the people perish. Because if you don't know where you're going, you're going to stay stuck right where you're at. And you may have the faith to endure, but you're not going to change from where you're at. Your situation won't change because you're only enduring. But when you catch a vision, you know where you're going. Somebody say amen this morning. Hallelujah. Though the children of Israel wandered in the backside of the desert for 40 years, the man that was leading them knew right where they were going. And the process was that there had to be a crushing down of the people. There were some of them who did not deserve to go to the promised land. They had to die off so the next generation could rescue it. But remember this, that the one chosen to be the high priest over the entire nation of Israel was the very one who was hammering out the gold to make the golden calf. Woo, somebody get a hold of that. I said, the one that was chosen to be the high priest over Israel, the one that was going to walk into the midst of the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that if you touch it wrong, it's going to kill you. I'm talking the one that was going to get into the holiest of holies was the same one with his hammer pounding out the gold to make the golden calf. Somebody grab a hold of that. Hallelujah. It just jumped out of the fire. <laughs> I believe the reason why Aaron was chosen to be the high priest was because he had seen the ten miracles of God. Then he had seen the parting of the Red Sea. And then he lost faith. And it is for the reason that he lost his faith that he was chosen to be the most faithful. Because he had to be the one that walked into the room to atone for the sin of the entire nation. You don't come to a place like that on a high horse. You got to remember where you came from, honey, if you're going to go into the presence of God. Aaron had a humble heart because he knew that he turned back to idolatry. He knew that he pounded out the goal. That didn't take five minutes to make. That took time, that took detail, that took process, that took forethought, that took a plan. They just didn't grab the earrings off their heads and throw it into a mold. They pounded it out with a hammer. That means you had a bucket and you were collecting the gold and the rings from other people and you were putting it into a place and then you had to physically walk it over to a fire and you had to melt it down. And you don't just melt gold like butter. There's a process to that. You've got to pay attention. Because whenever you can see your reflection in it, that's when the gold is most pure. That's how you can work with it. Aaron had a well-thought-out, well-purposed pagan thought. But with that same detail, with that same dedication, with that same anticipation that he had with that golden calf, he began to understand now a different kind of relationship. He was chosen and he was one of the lowest. 
because he was the maker of the idol. Which means whenever he went to spread blood on the ark, he did not have judgment in his heart about the sins that he had heard because he knew the sin he had committed was so wrong. That means he had to have mercy on people whenever they came to ask for him what to do with their lives. He had to have compassion on people because he understood how far back he had gone. His brother is standing there with the rod taking on Egypt. His brother is up on the mountaintop getting the blueprints for the tabernacle. He comes down off the mountain so anointed that he's glowing. So that when Aaron becomes this high priest, he never forgets how low he was. Amen. With every great promise, there is an even greater process. With every great accomplishment, there is a great crushing. The reward that Aaron gets is that he is the only person in the entire nation of Israel to walk through the curtain and feel the presence of God. Right. Hallelujah. So let's go back to these grapes. Jesus is sitting at the Last Supper, the Passover feast, and he's holding a cup. The cup's filled full of wine. And whenever he tells the people to drink it in remembrance of him, The man holding the cup and what's in the cup have synergy because the very process that the grape went through to become wine is the very process that Jesus went through to become a savior. A grape is formed to be crushed. Jesus was put on the earth to be a sacrifice. His very existence was to be tortured broken, bruised, beat up. And he's sitting there holding this cup, understanding now that this cup represents his blood. And as the grapes are put into their crushing stage, they are then bottled up, just as Jesus is bottled up into a tomb. And there's this fermentation, there's this change whenever they're laid into this dark place. And the chemicals and the yeast begin to start shaking things up in the bottle. Just as Jesus lay in a tomb three days. But whenever the seal is broken on the tomb, just as the seal is broken on the wine bottle, what came out is bolder, stronger, and with purpose. Right. Now, you may find yourself in a crushing situation, but Jesus did not call us to be living. He called us to die. The very thing that he said to his disciples if they opposed him getting on the cross was, take up your own cross and follow me. It's time to go die. Right. They're looking at him saying, Lord 
you've worked so many miracles and healed so many people. Why is it that you have to die in this way? And he rebukes him and says, if you're going to be a follower of me, pick up your own cross and start walking it to Golgotha beside me. The very symbolism of Christianity itself is a cross. A cross is a place of punishment. A cross is a place of abuse. And we wonder why we can't see the promises of God immediately. Because with every promise is a process. And we get stuck living in our process thinking that that's what we're supposed to see. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to act. But I don't like seeing crosses with Jesus on them. I like seeing empty crosses because Jesus did not stay on the cross. He wasn't nailed there permanently. His bones are not hung to a ragged tree, but he was laid up in a tomb and they didn't find his bones either because he was living. He wasn't dead. That's why that there's a promise for every process. It's not about what you're going through it's what you're going to and you have to have enough memory to receive a vision so that you can accomplish what God has called you to do so oftentimes I find church people we get amnesia and we think that God forgets us whenever we're being crushed because we have finite minds that quickly forget the promise that God has put on our life because we don't think we're going to have victory in the middle of our storm. We're not realizing that the storm is preparing us for our victory. Hallelujah. Somebody get a hold of that this morning. Glory to God. Isaiah 9 and 6 prophesies that for unto us a son is born, for unto us a child is given. That is the very beginning of these grapes. And the government, what should rest upon his shoulders? And he's going to be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He didn't start out like that whenever he was in the manger. He had to go through his entire life, be broken down and beaten to raise up from a borrowed tomb so that the government would rest on his shoulders and the promise of peace would enter in when he come up out of the ground. Somebody say amen this morning. Hallelujah. So if you're sitting there by your bed or you're wondering as you're driving the car listening to all these great promises and great accomplishments, if you're being beat down, that means you're being prepared for a great victory. If you're getting tore down, that means there's something going to be twice as good to lift you up. For as low as God takes you, he takes you twice as high. Meaning that whenever Job lost everything, he was given twice of what he started with. Somebody said, say amen. Whenever Samson had his eyes blotted out and was putting down inside the dungeon, he got put up on between two pillars to be mocked. And the day that he received his promise, he killed more Philistines in one day than he had his entire life because he was sent for a promise. He had to go through a process to get to a promise. Somebody says, I'm going through my process, but I see my promise. Hallelujah. Glory to God. The question is, not what did God give me? Not what did God give Aaron? Not what did God give Samson? Not what did God give Noah? What did God give you? 
What did he call you to do? What did he change your life for? What did he pull you out of? It's not about the relationship that everybody else had with God. It's about the relationship that you've got with God. It's not about the promises that have been given to everyone else. It's about the promises that have been laid in your heart. If God told you something and you heard it in the mouth of two or more witnesses, if it's been verified, tongue-talked, holified, whatever you want to call it, it may not have happened right then and there, but it's going to happen because you've got to be beat down so you can be built up. I don't know why God does it that way. That's just the way that it is. Maybe it's so that we can stay humble. Maybe it's so that we can understand what real judgment is. Not saying whether or not somebody is good or bad, but just understanding what is right and wrong. Not saying that there's a big I and a little you, but saying that we're all in this together and I've gone through my stuff and I've walked a few dirty places and I've been in some bad gutters and I've said some things I shouldn't have said and done some things I know I shouldn't have done and I've met some people I shouldn't have run with, but I tell you what, now I know how to get out of it. And for everybody that's ever suffered in a way that I've suffered, I'm gonna tell them how I got out of it. For everybody who's done some things wrong that I've done wrong, I'm going to tell them how I got out of it. Because I'm not going to let the process that I went through take away from the promises that I'm going to. I'm not going to let the process and the mistakes that I made take away from the promises that I'm about to obtain. I'm not going to let the dirt on my life be a stain on my clothes. I'm going to make it into a tie-dye and wear it for everybody to see so that whenever I say, I know I messed up, but I'm going through my process so I can get to my promise. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Somebody say amen this morning for every stain that's on your clothes, for every wrinkle that's on your garment, for every layer of mud that's under your boot, for every bad place you ever walked, there's going to be somebody come up to you in your life and say, I'm messing up. And you're going to say, good, I did too. You're going to have to be open about it and say, you may be messing up and you may even be messed up, but I was more messed up than you ever thought you could be. And God rescued me out of a pit and a place so bad, so rotten, so nasty, I wouldn't even put my enemies there. Come on, I'm talking about a process where I've been beat down under somebody's heel, where I've had my head beat in and couldn't fit it in a five-gallon bucket, been in places with people that I should have never run with, and now when I see somebody who thinks they're tough and rough, I say, hey, honey, you don't know what you're talking about, but there's a Jesus that I know that pulled me through it. You may think this is a rotten situation, but I got a God who pulled me out of something you ain't even been to yet. You don't even discover yet. You think that you're bad and you're poor and you got things going on? Honey, let me tell you about Jesus and the promises of God. Hallelujah. They may be going through that process and you might be the one person anointed to go before the throne of God. The one person anointed to stand in front of an ark, an altar, a place where they can pray. The one person who's going to feel the presence of God to be an intercessor for somebody, to be somebody that can rescue somebody else. Hallelujah. There are three steps 
that you take to get to this place, the first thing you have to do is be called. If you have been baptized in Jesus' name, you have been called. Don't worry, you're all included. Then you have to be anointed. If you receive the Spirit of God into your body, you have been anointed. Somebody say, I'm anointed. Come on, somebody get excited about being anointed. Somebody get excited about being called. Somebody get excited about being a life changer because your life was changed. Hallelujah. The next thing you're going to do is be appointed. Now, if you ain't appointed, don't go. But you're going to be appointed because your calling and your anointing are going to line up with your appointment. Come on. My calling, my anointing are going to line up with my appointment. But if you get someplace and it ain't working, that ain't your appointment. Hallelujah. You got to go through a process to get to that appointment. And if you want to be called to somebody or a particular group, you might have to go through what they went through to get to where they're at. Come on. Come on. You might have to go through what they went through to get to where they're at. So be careful who you want to be called to. I hear people say, I want to do street ministry. I want to get out there with the dope addicts and the drug dealers and the hustlers, and I want to go into the back alleyways, and I want to get them, and I want to save them. And if you're called, and you're anointed, and you're appointed, you ain't talking about it. You've lived it. You've walked it. You've breathed it. You've smelled it. You've had to pick yourself up from the trash can after you puke behind the dumpster, and you've seen the bum sitting next to you doing the same thing. You weren't called to that. You lived that. When you got out of it, you were anointed. Somebody catch what I'm putting down. Woo! Glory to God. You want to get out in street ministry and you ain't lived that life? You're going to have to experience a crushing before you can be effective. That's the next stage. Grapes cannot be effectively turned into wine where they are most potent unless they are smashed, unless they are boiled, unless they are filtered and then bottled. You want to be anointed to go to some place, you're going to have to be crushed before you get there. Mm, hallelujah. Glory to God. Come on. There's some of you who are called to be intercessors. The reason why you are called to be intercessors is because there was great tragedy in your life and you had to get down on your knees and you had to beg for God's mercy. You had to beg for God's healing. You had to beg for God's presence. That's why you're an intercessor because you have been in a place where you had to beg for the mercy of God. And so when somebody else says, I need you to pray for me, you know what it feels like to need the presence of God. You know the desperation that it takes to get to the throne of God. You know the pressing that it takes to get to the power of God. That's why you're called as an intercessor because you were crushed into begging for the presence of God. Hallelujah. 
Some of you are called to be holy boldness, meaning wherever I go, that's where I am. You may not have to be a loud speaking voice. A rock is unmoving. It does not speak and it does not see, but a foundation stone takes a great amount of force to be moved. Some of you are called to be foundation stones. You may not see a lot. You may not see a lot, but where you are in your faith, you are unmoving, unwavering, untouchable, because you're a foundation stone, and the weight of a great amount of people can be thrown on top of you, and you don't even know that they're there, because you've had to carry the weight of some people in your life. You had to give up something so that somebody else could have it. You had to give up your promises and your goals so somebody else could get there and you've been put under the feet of somebody else to carry them, not out of not out of malice, not out of distaste, not out of obligation, but out of love, that you love somebody else so much more than yourself that you decided to give up on what you wanted to do to carry them. Hallelujah. That's a foundation calling. That's the kind of calling that says, I don't even know how many people are counting on me, but I'm going to stay right here where I know I'm supposed to be. I'm going to stand right here where I know what I'm called to do and I'm going to keep pushing through exactly what I know God has called me to be. Hallelujah. I need some steadfast kind of people who say I may not be going anywhere but I ain't called to leave. I'm called to stay. I may not be walking to someplace far but I ain't called over there. I'm called right here. I may not be going out and about but I ain't called out there. I'm called right here. Somebody be a foundation star this morning. Hallelujah. Glory to God. But you had to give up something to learn how to be under something. You had to humble yourself. Relinquish some of your own thoughts. Give up some of your own dreams so that you could learn how to hold somebody else's. Hallelujah. Glory. Somebody say I thank him for the crushing because he made me greater than what I was. I thank him for the cross because he made me greater than what I was. I thank him for the tragedy because in the tragedy I was given abundance. Hallelujah. In the midst of the mess, I found my purpose. In the middle of the storm, I found the eye of the beholder and I got a hold of his garment and I didn't let go. I grabbed a hold of him like a mad dog and I shook a hold of him so that he wouldn't let me go. You find the middle of your promise while you're fighting through your process. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Most people who have a gift of healing have been healed from something terrible. Most people who have had the gift of interpretation have been desperate for a word from God. Most people who have the love of God have been so unloved, so discarded, so pushed aside that they were desperate for a father and a peacemaker and someone to cherish them. Glory to God, most people who have the gift of joy have known what deep sadness really is. Hallelujah. 
Come on, I'm talking about somebody who's been down. The people who know the love of God have been torn out to be the most unloved, the most unwanted, the most abused, the most mistreated, the ones that have been forgotten on the sideline. Those are the people who understand the love of God. Because when the Spirit came into their presence, it loved them unconditionally, and they did not understand it. It loved them without falter, and they didn't know that that could happen. And there was a great healing, not by some loud thunder or great lightning crash, but it was a helpful embrace. It was a holy kiss. It was somebody that stayed up with you all night and talked to you about nothing, but you just needed somebody to talk to. Hallelujah. There's a power moving in here this morning. Somebody you are realizing that all this crushing you've been going through is about to take you to a promise you never expected. Hallelujah. We are taught that the tabernacle is a reflection of Christ. We are shown that every piece of furniture, every garment, Every pole, every loop is an aspect of our Lord and Savior. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. But the first thing that you encounter when you walk up to the tabernacle out in the midst of a desert is a door. And it's pleasant. Just like the thought of Jesus is very pleasant one door but the first thing that you see when you go through the door is a brazen altar it's hot something living is tied up and bound and then tied to that altar and the altar does not move and the altar does not feel it is cold it is brass and it is there to be used as an instrument of death. The high priest comes with a knife to slit the throat. The blood is caught into a laver. The sacrifice is caught on fire by the holy fire. The very first sacrifice, the flame come right out from underneath the tent and consumed it. And it is a terrible place. It is it is a place that smells of burning flesh and death. Blood has a very distinct smell. And if you've got a nose like my mother, you know exactly what that smell is. And you can smell it and smell it and smell it and smell it and smell it. Jesus invites us to love him. But the first thing that he requires of us is to be a sacrifice. Paul says that your life would be as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. A living sacrifice is something that is tied up, tied down, cut up, and caught on fire. But we have a second door. As we move through this tabernacle and there is an ambient light, a controlled light of seven candlesticks. And there is bread there. 
and there is oil there, and there's salt there, and there's sweet flavors and incense happening, and it is a pleasantry. It's nice. It's much better than the stench of death, and much finer than the fire of the brazen altar. Did you know that for every time the bread was broken when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, it was smaller, but regained itself, and smaller, and then regained itself. But it had to be broken in order to be divided. You have to be broken in order to be multiplied. You want increase in your life, you have to be broken in order to be multiplied. In the hands of the mighty Savior, you being this tiny piece of bread can be broken and multiplied and shaped and molded until your very life and existence is a miracle that feeds 5,000. Right. Hallelujah. The very thing that destroyed you will be the very thing that multiplies you. The very hands that saved you will be the hands that divide you. He said, I did not come to make peace on the earth. I came to separate sons and daughters, mothers and fathers. There be two standing in the field and one be taken, two laying in the bed and only one be taken. Come on, I'm paraphrasing. Then there's a third curtain, a third door. We have experienced the light of a physical fire. Now we've seen the light of the menorah. But behind door number three, I take you to a golden ark that does not ever touch the ground but hovers above the earth. Just because the presence of God resides in it, the ark of the covenant never touched the ground. Even when the poles were removed from it, it hovered off the earth. Because what was contained inside of it was an Aaron's rod that budded the broken promises of the Ten Commandments when, out, when Moses came crashing down off of the mountain. There was a little bit of manna in there. And there was a holy presence of God residing inside of a golden box. And between two cherubs there was a light that shined that we would only call as the living light of God existing between these two angels facing each other the Shekinah glory of God, the kind of glory that it doesn't need a light bulb, it doesn't need electricity, it does not need the sun, nor does it need fire. It is light and light more abundantly because it exists as light. It is the same light that when God said in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And when you go back to the original Hebrew translation, it says God said light be and it was that same light that divided the darkness of the universe into the existence of life is the light that resided between those cherubs he didn't create the sun on the first day he created light ambient shekinah glory light and that same light that existed between those two angels is the same light that has been deposited into your spirit Come on. It may be dark. It may be quiet. But the light still exists. You may not be able to see what's going on around you. But the light still exists. You may have had to go through a burning altar. 
but the light still exists. Praise God this morning that whatever matter that you're dealing with, whatever crushing you may be going through, whatever process you may be walking through, the light still exists in the presence of God. It still resides inside of your heart. It's still deposited into your soul. And it's waiting for you to pick up your anointing. And it's waiting for you to arrive at your appointment. And whenever you get there, you will know that you were led by the Spirit of God because it is the miracle of God that got you there to begin with. Hold on to your promise this morning and be blessed in Jesus' name. I hope.